We are continuing on with our study of the book in our Made New series. And tonight we are looking at the beauty and the simplicity of the Bible. I think sometimes it's easy to read the scripture and keep seeing it as this narrow law or this something that's constantly confronting our humanity and our flesh and basically challenging our will and at times even our unresolved issues or even perhaps our rebellion. In other words, it's a book that we can pick up at times and be afraid to read or nervous to read or struggle to read because we think it's too complicated. It's from some other time in world history. I don't know what it means. If we could set those ideas aside for a moment and look at this here, of what it says about beauty. The beauty of God is in the scripture. Just let that sink in for a moment. Some of the most beautiful words ever written are found in the Bible. If you've ever read Psalm 23, that is a powerful, powerful, beautiful structure of poetry. If you've ever read the Lord's Prayer, that is a beautiful and powerful prayer laid in the Scripture. There's great beauty in Jesus' words. If you looked at the parables, there's beautiful ideas. The beauty of God, the majesty of God, the greatness of God's wisdom is revealed. Dare I say, even if you read the laws of God, there's a beauty in the law of God. There's a holiness in it. There's a symmetry to it. There's a balance to it. There's love in it. It's beautiful. And if we could see the Bible not just as a book that's challenging us or commanding us, but a book that's inviting us into the beauty of God's nature, we would be very much inclined to read this book because we would be enthralled with its beauty. We would enjoy it. We would see how lovely God is. And so the Bible can be broken up into several categories of writing. 43% of the Bible is made up of a narrative from historical narrative to parables. That's stories. There's a beauty of God in the stories in the Word of God, the justice in them and the way people lived and how they responded to God and how God interacted with them mercifully and yet with great truth. 43% of the Bible is made up of stories that have an ability that when you read them to place yourself in the story. And it's not that you begin to live like the people in the Bible, but you sort of see yourself in what they're doing. You see yourself in the middle of the narrative. And you see how God healed them and ministered to them and did amazing things for them. And when you do that, you could see him doing that for you. Somehow those stories inspire you about how God's gracious nature and kindness is ministering to you. 33% of the Bible is poetry, including songs and reflective poetry and politically resonant poetry of the prophets. To this point, that lots of current worship songs are written from the book of Psalms and from the prophets. If we read the Bible more, we'd know that. And I don't know that it's as popular now in the 21st century, but at the end of the 20th century, a lot of songwriting was scripture chorus. And so the poetic passages in the Old Testament and even some in the New Testament were constantly the source of beautiful music. And what was beautiful about that music is that it gave you the ability to sing those songs, which are easy to memorize and learn, and at the same time meditate on God and think about God and sing even the scriptures and worship God while you're thinking about the Bible. 
33% poetry. And the other 24% is prose, discourse, laws, sermons, letters, and even one essay. So there's a beauty in how God laid it out. It's not all just one style of writing. He's drawing from all these different people's lives and aspects of himself are being revealed in these stories. If you've ever read the story of Hannah who pleaded with God for a son and how she wept before the Lord and Eli, the priest who was too dull to understand what was going on, couldn't help her but instead chastised her, she has this son later. Samuel, and she comes and dedicates this little boy to God and leaves him at the temple at about three or four years old and leaves him there. And the Bible says that he learned how to minister to the Lord, but he did not yet know the Lord because he had not heard the voice of God. The word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. So it starts off with this woman who loves God so much and knows that she is supposed to have a, a child, but doesn't know how to produce that. And is in deep anguish. And it's like this anointing on her. There's this grace on her. And then that time next year comes around and she has this son. She dedicates him to the Lord. And then three years later, she brings him back as a little boy. And she sets Samuel in the house of God and leaves him there. And she would come and see him every year and bring him a new set of clothes. And he would tell her all the things that he was learning. And then someday he grew up and the voice of God spoke to him. And he heard the word of the Lord. And he became one of the first major prophets to Israel to reset the nation on a course of destiny that eventually would bring King David, which would eventually bring Jesus. And it starts not with King David and with Jesus. It starts with the humility of a simple woman who loves God and can't get past that she has not met her mandate. And she weeps at an altar. It's amazing to me how the thinness of thread God wove through human history to accomplish his will. There are moments in world history where the whole future of the kingdom of God came down to one prayer meeting. The obedience of one person who seems insignificant. That's a beautiful thing. When the spies go into Jericho and Rahab, the harlot, lets the spies in and doesn't reveal them and makes the Israelites promise that she will be safe from the judgment when the power of God hits Jericho because she said the fear of you is in the land, the the dread of who you are and what God is doing for you is upon us. And so they said, if you tell this business of ours, we'll be free from this oath. But if you keep this between us and you let us go, you'll be safe. The word of the Lord will be with you. We will, we will see you protected. She didn't tell the spies had come. She let them out. They didn't find them. And when the walls fell down, everything fell down but Rahab's house. And she hung the scarlet thread out of her window. A picture of the blood of Jesus saying, I'm redeemed. To the point that she becomes part of the ancestry of Christ himself and is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We're talking about a prostitute, harlot. Rahab the prostitute realizes that she needs God and she's on the wrong side of God. And God reaches into Jericho, the city he's going to destroy, and finds the heart that's his. Shelters her, (laughs) makes her a part of Israel, and puts her 
in the genealogy of the Son of God himself. That is a beautiful story of God's love and redemption and mercy in the earth. Ordinary people, but we see aspects of ourselves in those stories. Have you ever thought, I didn't deserve any of the mercy I received, but just like these people did in the Bible, God had mercy on me. So the beauty of the scripture is all pointing to one God, one grand, majestic, eternal purpose carried out through thousands of years of history. It's beautiful that God could start with the story of the creation and take us through the word of God all the way up to the time of Christ. That's thousands of years. And there's this covenant he keeps bringing into the earth and this will he keeps manifesting that he would have a people that would know him and belong to him and he would be their God and they would be holy and separated unto the Lord. And that story never ends. He keeps bringing it and bringing it era after era, group after group, generation after generation. God beautifully and mercifully reveals himself and brings people around to him. It's a wonderful thing to watch. The beauty is so simple in design. It's in fact, it's amazing that we have the book at all. If you consider that the Bible starts actually being written down 3,500 years ago, and that you have an intact copy of it in your hand, that in of itself is amazing. How many other 3,500-year-old documents are this intact? You realize that the Bible is the bestseller every year around the world and has been the most preserved book in world history. You realize that, right? It's because it's the most beautiful book in world history. I think that's a beautiful thing that God gave us his word and looked after it. And for 3,500 years, it's still going strong and in our hands and giving us power and ministering to us and leading us. That's amazing to me. That's glorious. That in itself is a beautiful thing that God kept his word and got it to us so that we could live. Praise God for that. There's a great numerical beauty in the word of God. Did you know that the word of God has lots of numbers in it? Kevin Connor says, it is impossible to read the Bible without noticing the continuous use of numbers. Practically every page of the book has some use of numbers. God himself is the divine numberer, and he has stamped his numerical seal upon the whole of creation. The same seal is also upon the Bible. So this professor named Ivan Painin, a Harvard scholar, put 50 years into researching the numerology of the Bible. Amazing. And this is something he discovered, little things like this. This is the book of Matthew, chapter 1, 1 through 7. It says in the beginning of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. So verse 1 says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. There she is. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, another foreigner who had no business being in Israel except that her heart was for God. And God brought her in miraculously and set her again in the genealogy of the Son of God and Obed, the father of Jesse. 
Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon. Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Let's just stop right there. This man found that the number of words in the vocabulary will all divide by the number of seven. The number of words beginning with a vowel is divisible by seven. The number of words beginning with a consonant in that passage is divisible by seven. The number of letters in the vocabulary is divisible by seven. Of those letters, those which are vowels and those which are consonants both divide by seven. The number of words in the vocabulary is divisible by seven. Of those letters, those which are vowels and those which are consonants will divide by seven. The number of words in the vocabulary occurring more than once is divisible by seven. Those occurring only once likewise divide by seven. The number of words occurring in more than one form is divisible by seven. The number occurring only in one form likewise divide by seven. The number of nouns is divisible by seven. The number that are not nouns likewise divides by seven. The number of proper names divides by seven. The male names divide by seven. The female names divide by seven. The number of words beginning with each letters of the alphabet is divisible by seven. That's just seven verses of the Bible all have that numerology in it. That's what I mean by beauty. There is an intrinsic beauty far down in the lens of Scripture. You have to look way down into it, like 50 years at Harvard, deep, to come up with that kind of understanding. I wonder how many other passages have amazing things like that living in it. How in the world was that written by men and somebody lost it through translation and that be possible? I don't think so. It's a beautiful book. The symbolism of the scripture is amazing. The Bible says that the word of God is like a fire. Jeremiah 23, 29. The Bible says there also the word is like a hammer. Psalm 119, verse 105, the word is like a lamp. James 1:23, the word is like a mirror. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, the word is like milk. Revelation 11, 1 through 2, the word is like a rod. First Peter 1, 23, the word is like a seed. Hebrews 4, 12, the word is like a sword. Ephesians 5, 26, the word is like water. Psalm 19, 7 through 10, the word is like gold. Psalm 19, verse 10, the word is like honey. The word is like an ox goat in Ecclesiastes 12, 11. The word is like a nail Ecclesiastes 12, 11 also. The word is like bread, Matthew 4, verse 4. The word is like a pearl, Matthew 7, verse 6. The word is like an anchor, Hebrews 6, 18. The word is like a star, Revelation 2, 28. The word is like meat, Hebrews 5, 14. The word of God describes itself and all these beautiful metaphors to give us understanding. Instead of just saying, it's the word, it's the word, God went to great length to use metaphor to explain to us who he is and what he's like and what the word of God is to us. There's a beauty in that, that all of the things he gave in the scripture so we could understand something. The parables are beautiful. The stories in those parables are beautiful. The parable of the prodigal son is an amazing story, and it's a beautiful story. Have you ever thought that? If you've ever listened to Keith Green's famous piece called The Prodigal Suite, where he set to music the whole prodigal son. And I remember the first time I heard it, I just wept 
because he took the beauty of that story and he set it to music and made it stand out. Finally, the scripture has great simplicity. I just want to say a few things here. The Bible is not complicated. Let's say it together. The Bible is not complicated. Whenever people say that, I tell them, go read it again. It is not complicated. You just think it is. There is nothing hard to figure out with thou shalt not. You do not have to be a Rhodes Scholar to understand that thou shalt not means thou shalt not. When it lists off all these people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, just don't be those people. Like, ask God to save us and to forgive us and get all of that out of us. I do not want to be a part of the liars and the thieves and the covetous and the immoral people that all end in a lake and fire. If you don't know what any of those words mean, get a dictionary. When I started reading the Bible, I didn't have a very good grip on the English language. Your average street person in Fresno does not have a good vocabulary. And so I had to have three books when I read the Bible. I had to have the Bible, I had to have a concordance, and I had to have a dictionary. Because I didn't read the children's Bible, I read an adult Bible, and there was a lot of words in there I did not understand. And I thought, okay, before I can get to Greek and Hebrew, let's start with English. What in the world does that mean, you know? And so whenever I came across words like propitiation, I thought, yeah, your basic rock and roller does not know what that means. Does that make sense? And so get a dictionary out, and you might find that it's not as difficult. It was written in the common languages of the day. This is an important point. Jesus didn't come along and speak in some high language that very few people understood, so he had some sort of mysterious element about himself so no one could really get it like he was speaking in code. He mainly used Aramaic, which was the most common language of the day, And he spoke down at people's level in very simple terms that they could understand. The prophets were not speaking in these billowy places in some ecstatic state in ways that no one could understand. They spoke the language people understood so that when they spoke, people knew what they were saying, which is why they often got killed, because they knew what they were saying. And they knew that the prophets were challenging them. If it was so difficult to understand, how come Jesus got killed? Why did they crucify him if they couldn't understand what he was saying? Why were they always wanting to kill Paul? Because they did understand what he was saying. Because Paul spoke in multiple languages, and whenever he was ministering in a city, and these things were being written down, it was very easy to understand. It was not dark sayings of some sort of weird mysticism. It was plain words, plain verbiage common language. It's intended to be read, taught, spoken, and understood, not obscure and difficult. It's intended to be read. The idea for ages went on that only scholars and theologically trained people could read the Bible, and the rest of us could not read the Bible because you know this book's too difficult to understand. That is not true. The Bible is not a document that only the intellectual trained elite of theological circles have the right to read and understand, and the rest of us are left in the dark. Everybody can take this book and read it and understand something. Now, there might be people that have a gift of preaching and teaching that can shed light on it, but the thing is, it's a book written for every man. And even if you can barely read, you can learn something from it. I want to take that notion away that, well, what's the use of reading the Bible? I won't understand it. I don't have the training. We should just ditch that. It's simple. Everybody can read it. Everybody can take a shot at it, right? Everyone can pick it up and learn from it. 
I think you got that point. The Bible explains to us the culture of the kingdom of heaven. You know, you could pick up the Bible and say, what's it really trying to say? It's very simple. God has a kingdom, and he wants you to be in it. And you can't be in it until you meet Jesus Christ and are born again and leave the kingdom of darkness and repent of your sins, which you were born into. It's very simple. We complicate the Bible when we try to filter our understanding of it through our understanding of the culture of the earth. Jesus explains this principle to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. Do you guys remember that story at all? Can anyone tell me what's going on there? The Gospel of John, chapter 3. Jesus is telling Nicodemus something. You must be born again, right? And what, what does Nicodemus not seem to get? Exactly. You guys got it. So Nicodemus says, I've got to be born again. You mean I've got to crawl back into my mother's womb? Nicodemus is trying to interpret a spiritual statement that actually is very simple once he got it. But at first, his only reference point was the earth. He was not catching on to what Jesus was saying. And it's very easy to do that. It's easy to read scriptures and reinterpret them through my life situation to the era I live in and then change the word of God to fit my context. I remember this man said he had a business. He had a construction business. And he was so busy working at his business that he didn't have time for God. And so I said, why are you doing that? And he said, well, haven't you read in the Bible where the Bible says build your business before your house? He says, that's a scripture, you know. And I said, "Um, I'm not aware of that scripture. I said, but I'm going to tell you right now, that is not in the Bible. And if that statement is in the Bible, it doesn't mean what you're saying it means. He goes, no, it's in the Bible. You go find it. I said, oh, I will. (laughs) And we'll have a discussion because I'm telling you, I don't know where you're getting that from, but that is not in the word of God. So I went home. And I found a version of the Bible that said, build your business before your house. However, the more accurate translation is, do your work out in the field, and then after you've done that work, then come home. When they were building the temple, you didn't do all the chiseling on the stones at the temple mount because there'd be a bunch of mess everywhere. You chiseled the business of making the stones at the quarry so that when you brought them to the temple, they just fit together and it was quiet. The hard labor to break the stones down is over here at the quarry. The easy going work of moving the stones into place is at the house. So you do the business of the hard work at the quarry so it fits together nicely in the home. That is the meaning of the scripture, not I neglect God because I have to build my business before my house. Can you see, this is someone taking a theological statement about the construction of the temple in Solomon's day and applying it to his hedonistic self-interest for his business. And he said that the church he had gone to taught him that, and they all believe that as a doctrine. So you would be negligent to the house of God because you know you got to make that business work before you can build your house. That is a cultural expression being replayed through somebody's wrong thinking of the Bible, and had they actually got out a concordance, um, a uh, commentary, and done just a little bit of research, they could have found that that is actually not what the Bible was teaching. Simplicity. The Bible makes sense when we read it or hear it, believe it, and let the Spirit of God teach it to us. Jesus explained this principles to his disciples by using the parable of the sower. 
How many of you are familiar with the parable of the sower? We taught that earlier in 2019. What's beautiful about that is that you do not have to be a scholar to figure that out. You are able to read that, listen to it, and learn from it at first glance. The Spirit of God will locate you and show you which one of the four you are, and hopefully something like faith will rise up in your heart about which one of the four you want to be. Seeds stolen from the roadside, choked out by shallowness of depth and rocky soil or thorny soil choking out growth or having a harvest, some 30, 60, and 100-fold. So the questions are tonight, is it sometimes hard to understand the Bible? What do you do to help understand it? That's a great question. Have you read the Bible and seen it as beautiful? Where were you reading? Have there been moments where the Bible stood out to you and you thought the beauty of the things of God are astounding to me. It's so amazing to look at. And then finally, has the Bible become more easy to understand after more experience with it? So with that said, for the next half hour, it is time to jump into the discussions. <laughs>